Chapter 11 of Abandoned by William Clark Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thelma Meyer. Abandoned by William Clark Russell. Chapter 11 The Chanticleer. Captain Francis Reynolds bankrupt by shipwreck, was now a rich man. That is to say, he was rich beyond any dreams of avarice which had ever entered his head. For how long does a master in the merchant service take as a rule to save out of perhaps the poorest paid calling in the world the handsome sum of eleven thousand pounds? with a few hundred pounds on top, in notes and gold, just enough to open a pretty little banking account with. But Reynolds did not happen to take an inspiriting view of the noble turn which fortune had done him. He was never once visited by a single heartbeat of exultation. The solemn and sturdy sense of satisfaction and repose of spirit which attend competence did not come to swell his heart. On the contrary, he regarded himself as a miserable, hopeless castaway, as a wretch whose hideous doom prayer was not likely to avert. And the bonds in the cave and the notes and property in the chest were as worthless in his sight as the leaf on the tree or the empty seashell on the sand. At the same time, he was sensible that he had most honorably come by this little estate, and he would sit and lament that he could make no use of it. The desire of his soul was that Lucretia should get it, and learn from whom it came, and in what state the husband she had forsaken had been when he contrived that she should receive it. Mrs. Lane was by no means well off. Dr. Lane, in his day, had been tempted to gamble on the stock exchange. The old fool went into mines, his friend said. He could not ask for a simpler and surer grave for the everlasting entombment of his capital, which he had gotten by painful toil, by tedious anxious vigils in sick rooms, by exposure to weather and to the many morbific diseases to which flesh is heir. Panic seized him. To rescue himself, his wife and daughter, from the workhouse, he purchased an annuity on his own and Mrs. Lane's life, on which, and about one hundred a year, which Lucretia would come into on her mother's death, and which represented money that had not gone to the jobbers, Mrs. Lane and Lucretia lived. All this was known to Reynolds, and whenever he thought of the bonds in the cave, he longed to give them to his wife, though convinced he would never meet her again. But how was this to be done? He pondered in vain. It was an end impossible to arrive at. Ideas occurred to him which he considered absurd. He had Goodhart's gold pencil, and there was a flat pencil in the chest. A roll of paper was there and in that chest were blank leaves of letters, Mrs. Goodhart's, and a few of Lucretia's to him. His wife's letters had been in his pocket when he was washed ashore. 
the ink had run the writing was indecipherable but he had kept the letters nevertheless and they had dried long ago and were fit where they were blank to receive pen or pencil he said to himself if i write my wishes how am i to dispatch them i have not even an empty bottle to cork the missive up in and send it afloat but suppose this could be managed the man who picked up the bottle if it did not go washing about till the crack of doom might value the secret too highly to betray it come to the island and carry off the bonds it will be seen that in these speculations he conceived himself dead but one day being vastly exercised by thoughts of his wife and the bonds he formed a resolution he said to himself i will write a sort of will and take my chance of its being found by one who will prove honest enough to carry out the instructions it contains for he clearly understood that if he was to die on the island the buried bonds must remain a secret for ever and eleven thousand pounds would be left to rot in a cave of no good to mortal man when by leaving a declaration of the existence of the treasure which it truly was it might peradventure come safely into his wife's hands and benefit the honest fellow who delivered it to her he took the roll of old paper from the shelf in the chest and using goodhart's pencil case he sat down on the grass employing the back of the shovel as a table a useful shovel it had served as a frying pan as a mattock for the burial of a man's bonds and then the man himself and now it was to supply the place of a desk he wrote thus june fifteenth eighteen ninety two i who write this am captain francis reynolds i commanded the ship flying spur which sailed from falmouth october thirteenth eighteen ninety and was lost off this island to fire and in half a gale of wind february second eighteen ninety one i am the sole survivor of the whole ship's company this at least is my conviction i remained alone till september fourteen seven months of solitude when a boat arrived with six seamen of the crew of the esmond that had gone down through a collision and mr john goodhart of sydney new south wales the sailors stayed on the island until october second on which day they chased the ship but the boat was without mast or sail and i am certain that she never came up with that ship and i am also persuaded that she will not again be heard of had her people been rescued they would have reported mr goodhart and me as being left and we would have been fetched not necessarily by the ship that received the men but through the report of her master plenty of time having elapsed to allow for that report to reach the ears of a british consul who would consider it his duty to communicate with the commander-in-chief on the pacific station 
when the boat had left the island, Mr. Goodhart showed me, in a couple of waterproof sacks, eleven Victoria four percent bonds, each of the value of one thousand pounds. He informed me that his wife had died in childbed at Sydney, and that he was absolutely without kith or kin. We conceived a great liking for each other. We were one in sympathy and tastes, but his was a very great and noble mind. Our comradeship in privation and the sufferings which attend shipwreck heightened our affection and endeared us to each other. He told me that if he died on the island, I was to consider myself his heir, and take possession not only of his bonds, but also of the property which was upon his person. As I shall continue to carry that property about with me in his clothes, which I am wearing, it will be found upon my remains, which cannot lie far away from the spot, if indeed I do not die in the cave. And the discoverer of this letter must seek my body and take what is on it, and I implore him in God's name to bury me. To provide against the risk of a landing being effected unseen by us, in which case the cave might be entered, the chest explored, and the bonds removed, I buried them with the approval of Mr. Goodhart, and the place where they lie will be found marked by a short spade-shaped stake which I drove into the ground to help me should my memory come to be weakened. My wife, Lucretia, when I left England, was living with her mother, Mrs. Lane, in Chepstow Place, Bayswater, London, W., and it is my earnest wish that she should be the recipient of these bonds and the property that may be found upon me. To which end I a broken-hearted, desolate, dying man. Humbly and affectionately greet the reader of this letter, and do entreat him, as he loves God and the truth and honor, to convey these words and the property to my wife, Lucretia Reynolds, who, for the trouble he is at in finding her, if she has removed, and in acting as my emissary, will receive fifteen hundred pounds, which he will more greatly enjoy as money honorably and virtuously gained than if he kept the whole sum, thereby robbing the widow and blasting the only hope which keeps warm and alive the heart that dictates these words. Again, I greet and bless you and thank you for the noble service you will be doing me. Francis Reynolds. The mere writing this letter was almost as good as a talk, almost as comforting to the poor fellow as the sound of a voice. He was even warmed when he had ended it and read it over by a little glow of hope. It was a something done, an act with a possibility attached to it. He went into the cave and opening the chest, took out an envelope that had been addressed to him by Lucretia, but the ink had been dissolved by immersion into mere stains. The envelope was dry, and he wrote upon it, 
to the Honorable Stranger. He put his letter into the envelope, and by working it with his knife, drew a nail out of the ruptured lock and nailed the missive to the lid of the chest. This was a great day's work, and he had not felt easier in spirits for many a long hour. He diverted, or rather distracted his mind, by conceiving the sort of person who would find the letter. But his face lengthened. The faint tinge of color deserted his hollow cheek when Fancy, exerting her brush, painted the image of a man cautiously entering the cave, then staring at the old sea-chest then bringing the letter away from the nail to the mouth of the cave to read it, then picking up the shovel and digging out the bonds, then proceeding to search for Reynolds' dead body. He did not fear the passage from life into negation. He could not suppose it difficult to die. He was certain that in nearly all cases nature gently slopes the way and puts her child to rest as a mother her baby and he was fond of these lines to die is landing on some silent shore where billows never beat nor tempests roar ere well we feel the friendly stroke tis o'er doubtless it was the human instinct of decency or maybe it was the secret passion in most of us that our ashes shall be honorably used that stirred in him somehow his very soul recoiled from the idea of his body lying unburied submitting a pitiful shocking spectacle to him who met with it it is the pride of the spirit which demands that its earthly tabernacle shall not be dishonored when life is fled there is nothing of human weakness in this quality. It is in true keeping with our most exalted thoughts that the spirit of man should desire that the shape of flesh which it warmed, which it informed, which expressed in brilliance of eye, in coloration of cheek, in play of mouth, in motion of limbs, the animation of its soul should, when that soul has departed, be reverently composed and decently draped for death and piously memorialized this same day being full of his will as he chose to think of his letter he took the guineas and silver out of the shelf in the chest and dropped them into goodhart's purse which he returned to his pocket goodhart's clothes had been fairly new and of excellent quality and they fitted reynolds but who would have recognized in that pale, hollow, bearded, scarred face, the lustreless left eye, the ruined cheek at the corner of the mouth, and the long hair streaked with gray, in that sad, wistful, hearkening expression which attends long watching and hope deferred? The good-looking, erect, close-shaven man who had stood before the altar in St. Stephen's Church with Lucretia Lane on Wednesday afternoon, September 16, 1890. But not yet was Goodhart's prediction to be verified, and Reynolds released from his long captivity and bitter solitude, 
from his sad and solemn contemplations of the awful and stupendous chasms of silence in interstellar space from the voice of the sea sobbing in the calm or bellowing in the gale from the whispers as of spirit tongues in the trees often to his visionary ear syllabling his name as though he were summoned from the weariness of his lonely strolls his solitary labor in the creek and over the fire pit the waking to the cold and desolate gray of the dawn the going to rest with the seabird at the mandate of the dusk and the first of the stars came september fourth eighteen ninety two a cool fair morning light clouds moving lazily a note of languor in the blow of the surge reynolds went for his bath and a drink of cold water in returning he stepped from the shorter way to the cave to ascend an elevation the first thing he saw on looking at the sea was a small brig heading in she bore about north-northwest the wind was about west and she flapped and curtsied as she floated softly onwards at the sight of her reynolds was transfixed for the space of a minute then the powerful instinct of self-preservation broke the hysteric spell with the speed of a madman he rushed to the cave picking up the shovel near the cook-pit as he went drove with weight of foot and rage of muscle into the earth exposed the bonds tore off his coat and waistcoat slung the sacks upon his chest and back and struggling into his waistcoat ran headlong to the beach wrestling into his coat as he dashed down the slope on the brilliant whiteness of that foreshore of coral nothing could have been more visible not even the hill behind of three hundred feet than reynolds figure motioning like a firework in frenzied dumb show had his sight been good he would have known he was seen invisible to him but easily within reach of a good eye a man stood near the wheel of the brig waving a white grass hat above the bulwark rail she was a little vessel of about two hundred and fifty tons her white breasts panted as she sank and rose upon the tireless swell of the sea a band of white ran round her broken by painted ports the sun flashed a lightning glance from the metal dog vane at the royal masthead in about half an hour she shifted her helm and came slowly round into the wind bracing her fore yards forward and her after yards aback and there she lay swaying her toy-like milky softness of cloths against the morning sky with the firm sea-line ruling in indigo from either hand whilst a boat sang from her port davits and two men and a man steering with an oar came along head for the creek shouted reynolds when they were within earshot and he motioned in the direction of that familiar spot walking rapidly towards it whilst the boat swerved and went that way in obedience to his diverting gestures she entered the creek and reynolds stood waiting for her ready to jump in from the low shore 
and even before she had lost way, when three or four feet separated her from the bankside, even before the two men had thrown in their oars, Reynolds, with a wild convulsive shout of joy, sprang and was in the boat with arms out to shake hands with them all. The fellow who had steered with an oar had a cast in his eye, and the red beard on his chin was as stiff as a toothbrush. "'You don't mean to lose no time,' said he, gazing with the others with great curiosity at the figure of the man. "'Who might you be?' "'A shipwrecked sailor,' answered Reynolds, "'a man who was in command of a ship that foundered off here twenty months ago.' "'Thank God you are Englishmen. I can talk to you.' One of them, who was a Swede, grinned, but his face sank instantly into its former stare of astonishment at the long hair and wild and rugged appearance of this newcomer. Twenty months,' said the man of the toothbrush beard. "'Are you alone, sir?' "'All alone.' this is a non-inhabited island then oh my god yes is there any fruit or vegetables to be got that's what we've been sent ashore to find out and to bring off you'll find nothing to eat ashore said reynolds what have you kept yourself alive on then sir fish look over the side that's how i have fared any fresh water abundant two cataracts of delicious cold bright water johnny said the man addressing one of his companions i'll just step ashore and have a look round and then we'll put you aboard sir gord bless me twenty months his face hard as leather with weather and seafaring softened its expression as he looked at reynolds and he said what might have been the name of your ship sir the flying spur ailing from where from london we are the brig chanticleer from hobart to san diego muddle master and i'm her mate and my name's frost you keep all on down here sir whilst i takes a look around the old man will expect a report he got upon the shore and walked up the slope. Reynolds sank into the stern sheet. He was trembling now, as he had trembled when he first beheld the apparition of the boatswain of the Esmond. Looking down upon him as he sat with a slice of fish breaking his fast in the dell, his eyes were moist, his respiration short and distressing. The two men who remained observed his state and humanely let him be for a little with the taste which would have done honor to well-bred gentlemen directing their gaze at the island or at the water over the side in whose glass-clear depths shapes of fish could be seen moving slowly the sailors viewed anything rather than this rescued man who was broken down with the joy of release the transports of deliverance for extremes of human passions are in close touch and great griefs and great delights often affect us in the same way 
I hope, exclaimed Reynolds, that Mr. Frost won't be long. You can't guess how mad I am to feel your brig's decks under my feet. He'll not be long, said the Swede soothingly. He was bound to give a look round, or the old man would haze him. He can haze, can that old man. Hey, Chani, his shipmate grinned. I think, continued the Swede, I did note der flying spur. She was a bark? No, she was a ship. Then she was another. I don't reckon you've done much smoking here, sir, said Johnny. It's always backy that men miss most when they're locked up. I've got a pipe and backy on me ear. Would you like a draw? He added with a sailor's politeness. I have not smoked for many months, answered Reynolds, and thanking you much, will not start just now. He sent an impatient look at the island for frost. I have had no news for nearly two years, said he after a pause. Have you any to give me? What's happened in all these months? Oh, there was a strike on amongst the sailors at Hobart when we sailed, said Johnny. I don't believe in unions myself. It was the same here, said the Swede. They make you pay to become members, said Johnny, and then keeps you out of work. No European, no English news, asked Reynolds. I read a piece in a paper before I leave. How dat they have opened a new dock at Cartif, on dat a French tramp ruins into der Goodwind lightship and sink her. Reynolds could not forbear a smile. After twenty months of ocean solitude, this was to be his news of the world. One thing you'll find ain't much change since she was wrecked, said Johnny, and that's sailors' wages. On sailors' grub, said the Swede. Them's a nice show of oysters, exclaimed Johnny, looking at a richly dyed cluster on some rocks projecting from the shore of the creek. Jump on that rock, said Reynolds, and you'll find a stone shaped like a cucumber. Knock them off with it. They are good eating. He did not need to ask if they had knives. Each man carried a blade in a sheath belted to his hip. They sprang ashore and were soon busy in hammering oysters and swallowing morsels, truly delicious, after peas soup and salt pork. It would be impossible to describe, though not hard to imagine, the dance of sensations, passions, and emotions in the mind of Reynolds whilst he sat waiting for the others in that boat. The island uprose before him. Goodhart was there in memory, and himself in his solitude, and again he beheld, with the vision of the spirit, the shadowless form that had walked bareheaded in the dell. How often had he watched those cascades, those birds out yonder, the ponderous coil of the surf rushing its load of splendor up the beach. He thought of the gloomy cave, his bed in the fissure, the stars beyond which his thoughts had winked to God, the grave he had dug, the cross he had made, the words he had cut upon it, and now he was to be rescued. He was seated in the boat. Men were hammering and swallowing and talking hard by. 
Yonder was a brig to bear him back to civilization and liberty and the life of man in town or country. It was so much like a dream that he sweated with fear that it was, and got up and stepped into the bows of the boat, returned, picked up an oar, opened a little locker under the stern sheets, all to make sure that he was awake. Mr. Frost came leisurely along to the creek with a deep sea-roll, and his arms curved like spouting water. And seeing that his men were eating oysters, joined them, calling to Reynolds, won't you partake of some before we go on board? Reynolds called back, I've eaten enough and want no more. Indeed, he stuck to that boat as a barnacle to a ship, and grappling the thwarts, he might have defied the united efforts of the three men to heave him out. For this man had been shipwrecked, and the Chanticleer was the first vessel that had come to look at the island in twenty months, and God knows how much longer, and he sat in that boat with the intention to stop. Impatience was working up into agony in him whilst the three feasted. The Chanticleer was a little brig. The discipline was not severe. If Mr. Frost was mate, he was man too and was Jimmy ashore, though Mr. on board. When this mate and his men had banqueted, they must needs linger to knock off a little freight of oysters for the old man. But whilst they were thus employed, the old man appeared to be visited by some of Reynolds' impatience. For sending for his gun, he loaded and discharged it at the island over the lifting and sinking rail. All right, said Mr. Frost, we're a-coming. They entered the boat and shoved out of the creek with about four dozen oysters at Reynolds' feet. You must have found it pretty dull, said Mr. Frost, deadly dull. Worse than a lighthouse, I guess. I came across a grave. Was that of your erecting? Yes. Ain't been alone all along, then. No. I likewise looked into a cave. It had a broken chest in it with a few old pipes in the shelf, and there was a hole in the corner of the ground as if something had been buried and then dug up. Did you sleep in that there cave? Sometimes. Did you observe a letter nailed to the lid of the box? I can't say that I did. Oh, why, yes, now that I come to think of it, I did take notice of what I thought was a label, sort of a dress card. You left it there? Why, certainly. Thanks. His answers were short. He scarcely listened. The man's heart was burning for the brig to get aboard her, to sit safe and deep in her bound for a port and human life. Six months, said the mate, gazing grimly behind him at the receding island. If I was cast away alone upon a bit of a watertight backyard like that, blowed if I know how I should be able to pass the time. 
Nobody to play cards with, even if a pack was to be had or invented. Near a parrot in sight to tame and learn to talk. There's no signs of life anywhere. Not even that derned old goat which every man expects to fall in with when he's cast away. If a man was cast away, mit a fine young female, I don't know but that shipwreck was good, said the Swede. You might stow that swash, said the mate, with a very bristling, rugged nod. Several figures leaned over the side of the brig, watching the approaching boat. What product of the island, dressed as a man, was Jimmy Frost bringing aboard? The boat's bows struck the vessel, and in a breath or two, Reynolds had leapt the rail and was standing on the deck. Captain Muddle was a very short man, clad in a long coat, whose swelling skirts descended to midway the calves of his legs. When you took a back view of him and did not observe the projection of his long feet, whose toes curved upwards, you beheld the travesty of some provincial academic figure, say a village schoolmaster. It was a coat, a head, and a wide straw hat fixed securely on two stout wooden pegs. Nothing more at variance with the traditions of the beef face of the sea could be imagined than this singular little creature who wore a beard who curled into a coil with soap the extremities of his mustachios and who gazed at you through a pair of heavily rimmed spectacles he was stepping his piece of quarter-deck with a sort of skating or sliding motion with the dignity of an admiral taking the air in his stern walk but stopped when reynolds jumping from the rail sprang almost on top of him the recoil of the short left leg in its trouser was an involuntary melodramatic stroke an example to the tragedian who starts at a ghost and the little man's magnified eyes glared at the wild and hairy figure that confronted him are you captain M muddle exclaimed reynolds who was so profoundly affected by the sense of salvation and the knowledge of absolute safety that he was without control of his voice he spoke in gasps the whole fabric of his nerves appeared to have fallen to pieces yes sir my name is muddle answered the little skipper viewing the nearly two years growth of hair the long beard the bloodless haggard injured face the worn-out raiment of his visitor with a most risible expression of astonishment not wholly uncolored by awe reynolds grasped his hand may the merciful god bless you he said as the only man whose ship has touched at this island in twenty long months during most of which time i have been alone here about here twenty months ago my ship in flames the flying spur foundered i commanded her where are you bound to oh yes i remember santiago am i awake my god am i awake he looked around him and up at the brig's canvas 
the sailors forward who were viewing him spoke not did not smile nor nudge or give expression to any other emotion than that of the sensations with which their little skipper was filled by the pathetic pallor and worn and sorrowful countenance of this long-bearded man who pleaded as a castaway who was imperiously significant even to the most ignoble instinct by the magnitude of his twenty months of almost lonely confinement to yonder little island with its silver threads of cascades its lifeless slopes its dazzle of foreshore i am very glad to receive you said captain muddle i was a bit out of my reckoning and seeing this island close aboard at daylight i thought i'd look in to find something that would give us a fresh mess what's to be had he asked addressing the mate i brought a few oysters answered mr frost there's nothing else worth mentioning there's fish but fishes want catching and catching means waiting is that water good that's spouting down that hill said captain muddle deliciously pure and cold and bright answered reynolds muddle sent a look at the oysters which the men had handed up we might do with some more of them said he and suppose you turn to james and lower a couple of casks into the boat we could do with a little pure cold bright fresh water it may be all a week's sail yet and fresh water at sea is fresh water if it's fresh water anywhere there are no place in this globe though you shall call it sahara have you eaten any breakfast captain he continued expressing much kindness in tone and manner and some culture in enunciation no i've eaten nothing since yesterday answered reynolds then step below sir joe he shouted a young sailor started from the rail over which he had been hanging in the lazy lounging posture of the merchant seaman when he is idle on board ship bring some hot tea after the cabin get some coffee made tell the cook to fry some bacon and put some salt beef and marmalade and ship's bread on the table and he led the way down into the cabin through the little companion hatch a brown dusky interior with lockers for seats and a chair for the skipper at the head of the table a dingy skylight a stove and two little cabins aft and two little holes of berths in the forepart reynolds cap in hand stood gazing around him dumb with the transport with which the sight of the cabin fired him this interior gloomy as it was was raised by the spirit of this rescued man to the magnificence of a palace by the royal quality of liberty with which its darkling atmosphere was instinct i thank thee o god his heart said mutely and he turned up his eyes with a beautiful and touching look of adoration and gratitude end of chapter 11 recording by thelma meyer